All right, let's let's go ahead and cover this. Just let's just get this out of the way first thing. Uh, several of you are going to be like, hold up, hold up. This is not season one, episode one. And you are kind of correct. There are certainly valid reasons to think so. I have decided to follow production order for the sake of this show, my show, that is to say, to make things a lot easier to keep track of. I have lists, and those lists are in order, and that order is in production order, and that helps me to look at this and say, okay. It, it, I, I, I schedule these literally over a year in advance. I need everything to be nice and organized and easy to sort. So for my sake and for my sanity, I'm going ahead and doing production order. If I'm being completely honest, I do have a second reason for doing that. It's because I think production order can really be informative when it comes to a show like this one. But if you want to watch this in air date order, there's nothing invalid about that. In fact, that's what my Blu-rays are actually in order of. So that would be, for example... Man Trap would be first, which we'll be talking about later. Then Charlie X, Where No Man Has Gone Before, Naked Time, Enemy Mutt's Women, etc., etc. It is also valid to follow the broadcast order of the remasters, which actually starts with Balance of Terror, goes to Miri, Devil in the Dark, Naked Time, City on the Edge of Forever, etc. Here's the thing, though. It doesn't really matter in-universe, and that's the biggest reason why I've chosen this. Uh, well... Because if it mattered in-universe, then I would do it in the in-universe take. You know, in Kingdom Hearts, you actually do want to play through the Kingdom Hearts series in production order, even though that's not the narrative order, because that actually helps to inform the narrative and how the story is pro progressed. So that makes sense, right? But that is that has continuity. This show kind of doesn't. There's a reason why the stupid Turnabout Intruder is the series finale of Star Trek, the original series. And it's because, and then there's a reason that effectively the Man Trap was the series premiere. It's because nobody cared about that back in the day. Well, there were exceptions. Those exceptions were exactly that. The, the actual preference for a lot of studios, especially when it came to this kind of sci-fi, was they wanted it to be able to slot in episodes in and out wherever without any regards to continuity. Now, there is a degree of continuity in this show, certainly more so than, for example, Twilight Zone, because you don't have the same actors playing the same characters across Twilight Zone, whereas you do in this show. So it's like the bare-bones beginnings of continuity. But, at the same time, you could watch most episodes of this show in any order, and it won't really change much. That's, again, why I'm shift, shift, uh, focusing, shifting focus onto production order rather than air date order, because I think this is informative for how they were making the show. Sense, Mike? Ugh. Yeah, I love it. First thing we do, we got to discuss that. This is also a good time to bring up Oscar Katz. I said I'd bring him up next time. And I want to read this word for word here. I got, I got this quote here from Star Trek Creator. And I quote, NBC didn't like the type of story we told. I think they selected this pilot to test Desilu on the hardest kind of story to produce because of the re reputation Desilu had. Then, when they saw it, they were satisfied that Desilu was able to produce quality material, but it was the wrong kind of episode to take around to advertising agencies and sales. Too far off the beaten path. I asked NBC, why are you turning this down? And I was told, we can't sell it from this show. It's far too atypical. Now, this is, this is a quote from Katz himself, by the way. I said, but you guys picked this one. I gave you this choice. 
And he fought this, is, is the point here. He fought and struggled and ranted and raged, and finally, you know, uh, I, I, uh, Mort Werner was the specific executive who said, I know we did, and because of that, we're going to give you an order for a second pilot. Now, I've already covered the whole second pilot thing, and I've already covered the first pilot, but I wanted to bring that up here because Katz basically bows out of Star Trek after this. Um, there were issues at the time. There were salary issues. There were, uh, God, there's a lot of things that, that are debated as far as exactly what happens. Katz himself uh, didn't show up until 1972, uh, the first New York Star Trek convention. And he did a brief thing in 1994 as well. And that's mostly it, like three three pokes into the... So, so it's difficult to even properly understand this man's contribution to Star Trek. But from what little windows we see in here, this guy was the guy who was at the plate, to use the analogy, actually swinging the bat to make sure we got this second pilot. He was the one in the room arguing with the executives and trying to talk the money people into making the second one happen. So, Mr. Katz... Hats off to you. I don't have a hat, so you're going to have to live with a salute. And I mean that with total sincerity. Well, there's a lot of people uh, who have went into the making of this show. I wanted to give special praise to that man for being the point man for getting us that second pilot. Because if we didn't get that second pilot, that was it. So, having finally discussed that, I've had that quote there for a long time. Uh, I mentioned last time that I wanted to reference something. And hey, it's arrived! You can tell it's been a week since I recorded the last episode. This is the book I was referencing. Uh, you can tell it's a little little weather. <laughs> I've read this book many times. Inside Star Trek, The Real Story by Herbert Solo and Robert Justman. This is an invaluable resource for me. I have already referenced it several times. I will continue to reference it several times. This thing even has actual reproduced letters and stuff like that. Absolutely brilliant. And for anybody who's really interested in the behind-the-scenes perspective on the making of the original series, I would probably consider this the most definitive source I got. So big shout-outs to Lormum for mailing this out to me. I will, of course, be mailing it back to her when we are finished with TOS, because that is an old and valuable book, and I'm not sure you can get copies of it anymore. <laughs> Uh, um, at least not new ones. This is obviously a very, very used copy. So, what do we got here? I talked about Oscar Katz. I talked about uh, Solo, who ended up kind of taking charge after this. I talked about the order of the episodes. What I did not talk about was Daryl Anderson. Now you're probably thinking, who the heck is that? I'm going to be name-dropping a lot of people during the course of this series, by the way, because there's a lot of people who made TOS happen. He was the guy in charge of, uh, he was a part of a special effects company, and he was in charge of making the title crawl, the intro, you know, do, 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 do. not the music, but the visual side of it. And he was freaking the hell out. No, seriously, he actually had a nervous breakdown, like a legitimate nervous breakdown. Now, what I like about this story is what they did was they reached out to him. It's okay, it's okay. They sent him to Palm Springs and said, take a frickin' week off. Because he had been working night and day, sleeping very little, trying to get this sucker ready in time for their deadline. They took the footage that he had finished, threw together a substantially worse version of the intro. Some of you have probably seen it because it's floated around uh, the internet a few times at this point. And then said, we'll work on the rest later if the show gets gets pulled in for it to be a weekly show, okay? Take care of yourself, buddy. 
And credit to, where credit is due, how rare is it that you actually hear a story like that? Instead, it's usually, they worked overtime day and night and crunch, 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 and then they were fired is, is the more common story. So it's nice to hear that he actually got that. Anyways, uh, Justman, who was very involved in the production of the show at this point, also said, yeah, this is going to be a nine-day shoot. Now, NBC was apparently like, whoa, whoa, we're not signing off on that. If you ha- If you're not aware... Uh, and I talked about this a lot back in the TNG stuff, the amount of days a episode takes also serves as a shorthand for how much money it's going to take. It's not always true, but it's extremely true most of the time. You can just eyeball it and say, yeah, it's going to be this kind of a shoot. And that's one of the reasons why Shades of Grey and its three-day shoot is absolutely insane. So, nine-day shoot. They're like, no! Okay, we'll pull it back to seven. Okay, we'll sign off on that. So naturally they went over schedule and it was a nine-day shoot. Huh. Go figure. It's almost like Justman knew what he was doing. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just... Uh, McCoy wasn't on the show yet. Uhura wasn't on the show yet. Uh, we'll talk about them when they actually show up. It is worth noting they brought in uh, Paul Fix to be the doctor. Do you notice that he, has a, he barely has a role in this episode? Which is funny. Sulu and Scotty barely have roles in this episode, too. They're there. Sulu's in charge of the the astrophysics department instead of being the helmsman. That's another thing that'll be one. There's actually a lot of things that are inconsistent between this and the rest because again, this is a pilot, right? That's another reason why watching it next probably makes more sense to me rather than you know fourth. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. But uh, what's funny about the McCoy thing, that is to say, the divorce Kelly thing, is Roddenberry wanted to bring in Kelly. Actually, I remembered the two had worked together previously, and there were some connections under the hood there. So. He wanted to bring in Kelly, and he was overridden on the cage by the director. So, okay, fine. But he wanted to bring in Kelly for this particular one, and he was overridden by the director. And he's like, okay, that's enough. If this show gets to be a weekly show, I'm bringing in DeForest Kelly. <laughs> and the rest is history. Now, the World Science Fiction Convention uh, showed a pre-broadcast version of this. This is before the show really went live. The reaction to that is interesting, because the reaction said it was constructive science fiction. That's a direct quote. And there are people who said that it was very optimistic, and mentioned how unusual that was. I'm guessing it's mostly because these people weren't really familiar with Doctor Who at the time, but then again, looking at American science fiction at the time, I can see the the perspective there, since American science fiction, especially when it came to television, was aliens and monsters and robots and there were exceptions but that was the norm apparently this blew people away it's actually funny to think about since you know fiction in general has advanced so far in the last 50 years but people looked at this like it was something new it kind of was it's funny though having said all that it's worth noting that the big thing that really convinced the executives to go ahead and give this the, go, the, the, the green light for the weeklies was the big fist fight between Mitchell and Kirk at the climax of the episode. Remember that? The cage? I, I should have had a big fist fight at the climax. Well, they did it, and hey, they decided they could sell it. Huh. By the way, special uh, praise to Gary Lockwood, who plays Gary Mitchell. That's got to be confusing. He had these contacts in, in order to give the eye effect, so that's a practical special effect. And they look, uh, 
They look all right. You know, I'm not going to make too much fun of the effects of this show for reasons I've already commented on. But what's really funny is they were apparently very painful to wear, and he basically was blind in them. And that makes a lot of things make sense in hindsight, because the way he looks around, like he tries for this aloof thing, and it's good acting. It's good acting. He does a good job of trying to, you know, come across as this, uh, let's call it Greek god approach, because that is overall his style here when he, when he presents himself. But the, the original reason is because he couldn't see anything, so he's just like, huh? Eh, eh. Anyways. Uh, I mentioned uh, this episode was... One of the stated reasons, this is by Mr. Solo, that this episode was pushed back instead of being the actual pilot, the first episode that was aired, was because it was too expository. <laughs> I find that funny for so many reasons. I, I mean, good exposition is good exposition. And I think that good exposition is awesome, but this this episode actually has decent exposition. It only really stumbles on one point, which I'll be pointing out as we go through. But it's just funny to me that an episode being too much exposition is considered a bad thing back then, whereas nowadays it's pretty much, you know, screenwriting 101 for good and for bad. As you know, you're watching a video by the Lore Runner right now, and as you know... <sighs> Anyways, <clears throat> so let's get into the episode proper. Cam's log, stardate, flabbity flu. Uh, we see the purpose of the captain's log immediately, you know, expositing, getting across, expositing, getting across the, the basic premise, but you'll also notice it segues immediately into his chess game, three-dimensional chess, right at the beginning, with Spock, and as a consequence, it also allows him a chance to continue to fret about it, basically. In short, it's not just a cold, efficient machine giving you narration. It's also him thinking about it, worrying about it. It's like, oh, I should have gotten this by now. I'm not sure what's going on here. You know, there's 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 a human element to it, which actually helps flesh it out substantially, I think. Hmm. This is a good time to mention something. Uh, the USS Valiant penetrated the galactic... Okay, I know I said I wouldn't talk about continuity too much, but i got to point out the big things. So they're they're leaving the galaxy. <laughs> okay, that's the first one. That's we're done. We're done. But the second one's even better. Check this out. I did a little basic math. Two hundred years ago, the USS Valiant left there. Okay, okay. That would have been twenty sixty five. That's forty five years from now. To give a little bit of perspective, forty four when this episode goes live. Now, that's not the main thing I'm pointing out, although that's funny in its own right. No, the real thing I find funny is that in 2063 is when Star Trek First Contact happened. You know, when the Vulcans first came down to Zephyrin. So that means two years after First Contact with the Vulcans, that's when the starship broke out of the barrier. To give you a little bit more perspective, Enterprise, that is to say the NX-01, and the Enterprise show, Broken Bow and the launch of their first ever Warp 5 vessel happened in 2153, almost a century later. Anyways, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just point it out. Uh, so, Spock mentions Earth emotions. Keep that in mind. He also mentions one of my ancestors was part human. Now, that's a funny way to talk about your mom, but again, they hadn't decided any of that yet. It is nevertheless interesting that him being partially human, at least somewhere in his bloodline, was something that was established 
all the way back here in, uh, in, in what is effectively the first episode. So, Kirk exposits a little bit on what a black box is, and then we find out that there's a psychiatrist on the bridge. Yeah, right, as if we're going to ever need to shrink on the bridge. Give me a break. Then we find out about espers, and, you know, it's really weird how much ESP or mental powers were at the forefront of Star Trek. Energy beings and godlike aliens, to quote Farscape, has always been a thing in Star Trek. And it really does go all the way back to The Cage and uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. It's just interesting that of all the things that are, you know, were designed at the, at the go-ahead, like at the, right out of the gate for Star Trek, was mental powers. I do find that interesting. It was kind of a thing that was being shopped around at the time. The uh, Forbidden Planet is another example of something that did the, the same general concept. And obviously, in later years, we'd have things like the Force, and uh, there was um, the Mule in Isaac Asimov's thing. It's just interesting to think about, because i got to be honest, while mental powers are certainly kind of an everyday thing in Star Trek, I also have never considered them any kind of a focus of Star Trek. But I'm a weirdo, and I'm curious if anybody massively disagrees with me on that. I mean, for God's sakes, Vulcans are low-key psychics, so whatever. Anyways, by the way, you'll notice that once again there's only one alien on the Enterprise. Spock. Just keep that in mind. So, their sensors can't make f sense of the barrier, which makes sense because Zero's on the other edge of the barrier, and they, they don't want Zero to get through there, after all. This also leads to Daner, the doctor, getting weirdly defensive about Espers. Then we have a scene that probably should work a lot better than it does. Now, Shatner gets a lot of crap for being a bad actor, and we'll discuss that as we go through this show. But what's interesting is he can also be a good actor. What I mean by that is I think Shatner's acting potential depends entirely on his director. I'm dead serious. Because I've seen that man give terrible performances, like, like worse than me, for God's sakes. And then I've seen him give really good performances. Like, not, not, not the best, but certainly in, like, tier two level of performances. So, again, I've, I've had this theory for several years that his acting talent is directly proportional to his directors and how much they're able to pull that kind of performance out of him. This is important in this episode, though, because one of the cruxes of the episode is his relationship with Gary and how much Gary is his big friend from forever ago. And that's supposed to drive a lot of the drama of the episode. And I don't think it does. Intellectually, I can get it. If I divorce myself from the, the events on the screen and I just think about the events, I can understand Kirk being upset and worried and this is his old friend. And I mean, it's not that hard to think of. Think of someone you've known for years and years and years and they just start going and having vampire ego syndrome all over the place and start try threatening to kill you and destroy the ship and remake me reality. I mean, right? You know? That would be a big, impacting moment. It explains so much of Kirk's approach in this episode. Why he takes so long to take action. Why that action is so muted. Why it takes him until the point at which a, an actual murder has happened for him to finally decide to effectively sacrifice himself and the planet he's on in order to make this happen. And even when he has Mitchell at his, def his defenselessness, he hesitates because that's his friend. All of that makes sense intellectually. I just don't buy it from his performance. And unfortunately, Mitchell and, that is to say, Lockwood and Shatner really have no good chemistry together whatsoever. Which is important for something I'll get to in a minute. 
So they talk about, you know, their past. We get a little bit of backstory about Kirk being this really driven captain, which is good, because that's going to come up many, many times. Um, we also see the very first step in where Mitchell's going, because he's reading Spinoza, who you may or may not know as someone who is a philosophist who wrote, uh, well, wrote a collected works that were put together after his death into something called Ethics. And not not the concept, it's the name of the novel. Or name of the book, excuse me. And Spinoza also based a lot of his stuff on Descartes, who you may have also heard of when it comes to philosophy. I myself have referenced a couple of them here and there. I'm vaguely familiar with them. But my point is, I'm telling you all this in case you are not vaguely familiar with them. They're considered in many ways some of the modern giants. Emphasis on modern giants of philosophy and uh, deeper thinking and meaning and blah, 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 blah. And he calls them, he calls Spinoza childish. It's the first hint that something's up. And I was ready to praise this episode for having a slow escalation, but actually it goes from that to him just being like, whoo, very quickly. So I actually can't praise the episode for that. What I can praise the episode for is mentioning how he was worried about Mitchell back in Deneb 4. Doesn't sound familiar? That's where Farpoint Station was in TNG. Look it up. Anywho, <clears throat> so... There's actually a really good scene. It's probably one of the better scenes. I'd say the second best scene uh, in the episode. First of all, uh, we mentioned that there's no feelings on your planet, Spock. But how about you have a little feeling? Second time it's brought up. It's the meeting where all the department heads are reporting on things. Daner, Daner gets really weird in this scene. Like, just... What is wrong with you, lady? I, I actually don't know what to make of her presentation. Cause she's just, she comes across as if she's actually crazy. Like, like she was actually directed to be crazy, which is funny because Mitchell is directed to be childish. So that's a fun combination there. But what is relevant is that as she's spouting her defensive things and as she's yelling at Spock, Kirk shuts her down. It is my job. He says this wonderful speech. I'm not going to quote the whole thing because I didn't write it down, but it is my job to consider any threats to this ship, whether I want to hear them or not, and it is his job to tell me all that information so I can judge it. That's totally right, and kind of awesome in its own little way. They then give the rest of the briefing, and Kirk listens to it and all that fun stuff. Then, and she, she gets super crazy... Everyone leaves except for Spock. And Spock says, you know, this is doom and blah, blah, blah. And Kirk snaps at him. I don't need vague warnings. I need recommendations. Spock's response instantly, no hesitation. Recommendation one. There's a planet coming up. We can help. You can use some of the ore and resources from that planet to help prepare the ship. And we can also abandon him there. Kirk freaks out over this. God, no. Oh, God, God. Can't you just have feelings, Spock? Why don't you have feelings, Spock? That's the third time. But, of course, Spock has the other recommendation ready to go, too. Just kill him while we still can. And Kirk says, set a course. This is the second best scene in the, in the episode, in my opinion. And a lot of why rests on Kirk, Spock, and Kirk and Spock. Even here, way back at the beginning, these two characters are shining, and the way they play off each other is wonderful. The two actually do have legitimately good chemistry. And I can especially say that here because they just freaking met. 
I mean, they'd done some work together on some other things. I shouldn't say that. As I mentioned, just about everyone involved in TOS was a veteran of acting and, and television production. But the point is, they, they do very well together. So, they go after Mitchell and they talk to him. Mitchell plays with the thing and shows off his godlike powers. Oh, his godlike aliens. And... Mitchell then, you know, freaks out and tries to, to, to stun them and then talks about how he's going to defeat them and you should kill me just like your science officer says you should. And they, they knock him out, drug him, drag him down. You fools, you insects, I'll squash you all. Squash you like insects. That's a little bit of a quick <laughs> escalation there. Holy crap. So they bring him down to the planet and then they decide to uh, leave him in a room with a force field rather than anything else that they could have done here. Mitchell pushes against the force field, loses power briefly, demonstrating that he has finite power. This is one of the biggest reasons why I say this is vampire ego syndrome. For those of you not familiar with that particular lorium, lorerunner.com, plug, 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 the vampire ego syndrome is a very common thing. It's only true in fiction. Well, okay, that's absolutely not true. It is true in real life, too, but let's ignore real-life examples. What it is, is someone gets a teensy bit of power and they're like, oh my gosh, I, I can produce a small flame from my hands. I must be a god. Yeah. And then they, they, their ego just spirals out of control and they usually die stupidly. Like being crushed by a bunch of rocks after a fist fight with a normal human. You see the parallel. I call it vampire ego syndrome because in a lot of vampire fiction, most vampires have exactly that problem. And I'm, I'm talking like, you probably think, well, vampires can be very strong. They can be. Most of the strong vampires don't have that. No, I'm talking about the guy who just got turned like yesterday. And he's like, oh, dude, I'm a vampire now. And now, I'm a god, yeah. It's so common. It's actually hysterical. There's even a, a recurrent subplot across, vamp across Vampire the Masquerade, the setting, World of Darkness, specifically t of, of dealing with fresh-turned vampires to make sure that that doesn't happen. Anyways, so Mitchell goes, woo-hoo, and um, he also mentioned something. Man cannot survive if true espers are allowed to grow. Shades of space seed here. It's interesting to think about. Also, this would lead to the, the genetics thing, which would eventually come up way later over in Deep Space Nine. Kirk, this is, there's another good scene. Uh, Kirk says, it's not the best scene. It was, this is like the third best scene at this point. Kirk is like, how could a trained psychiatrist be wrong and you're right? What, what could possibly lead to that? Because Kirk is just desperate for any reason to not have to kill his friend, right? Again, logical. No pun intended. The problem is, Daner has been terrible this entire episode. Has basically been cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And actually has a scene where she insists he's not evil seconds after he's murdered someone. Granted, she doesn't know that. Then he paralyzes Spock and Kirk and effortlessly walks out of the thing. And she's just like, okay. I'm cool with this. I really don't know what's going on with her. I, I got nothing. Spock, of course, gives his line. This is the fourth time now. She feels I don't. This, I, I'm bringing this up, There's, it actually comes up a fifth time. It's, it's part of the final bit at the very end of the episode. Where he, I, you know, I felt for Mitchell too. So five times in this episode, we bring up Spock's lack of emotion. It's worth noting that the nature of what Vulcans would eventually become wasn't actually invented yet, obviously. The whole point was that he is 
separate from his emotions or actually doesn't have them because the writers couldn't quite agree early, this early on. And they wanted to really emphasize that for some reason. And so they hammer that point in weirdly and often. I think it's one of the weaker parts of the episode, if I'm being honest, and it might have something to do with that whole over-exposition thing. But anyways, this then leads to the best scene in the episode, in my opinion. You're probably thinking, what? The final battle? No. Kirk gets up, realizes what happens, talks to a crewman and says, here's the deal. You're going to leave. You're going to go on the Enterprise right now. If you don't hear from me in 12 hours, you're going to leave this planet and bombard it with radiation until it is dead. Do you understand? Then he picks up a phaser rifle and goes after his friend. Ladies and gentlemen, James T. Kirk. Oh, excuse me, James R. Kirk. <laughs> By the way, the actual official explanation for that is just that Gary Mitchell makes mistakes. Several, several books have tried to cover up the James R. Kirk mistake in several different ways. Let's, let's not cover all that. The point is... That moment of Kirk taking command, owning up, and walking into battle himself is probably wrong. He is the captain, and the captain shouldn't do that. But let's be clear, it is very Kirk. And that is a good way to establish him, especially this early on. So, they, you know, this, is, this also leads to another Kirk, Kirkium. Above all else, a god needs compassion. If you could just be a psychiatrist for one minute longer. Just be a human for one minute longer. And as he's being tortured down and forced into this praying position by Mitchell, the whole time he's speechifying to Daner, trying to get through to her. Let's be honest, Kirk isn't Picard, obviously, but Kirk does have several traits which effectively make him kind of the in-between of most of the other captains. He's got the ability to speechify, but he's also got the ability to outthink, outwit, or otherwise try to identify anything he can use as an advantage when he is otherwise at a disadvantage. Most of Kirk's greatest triumphs are when he is substantially outgunned, one way or the other. This is no exception to that. Because he identifies the situation, and he, what he does is he reaches out to her. He's like, look at this! One god? And the best part is he doesn't make any of it up. He's not lying. He's not rolling deception. He's just rolling straight-up charisma. And that's Kirk in a nutshell, isn't it? He convinces her. And he's right, by the way. You'll notice Mitchell is just egoing into Nana land, by the way. Absolute power corrupting. Absolutely. Hide and cue. Wonk, wonk. I, I, I think I've made my points about that episode and how much I disagree with the very idea of power corrupting or absolute power corrupting absolutely. So all I'm going to say here is that it's a weirdly recurrent trend in Star Trek that the moment someone gets power, they go vampire ego syndrome and go super evil very quickly. This is no exception to that. There are exceptions in Star Trek, which is nice to see, but this is not one of them. So... Yeah, and they fight, 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 and they fight. Kirk hesitates. Of course he hesitates. That's his friend. And, of course, compassion. But, thankfully, he's still weakened enough to be crushed by the rocks, so that's good. And he definitely doesn't show up any time later when the X-Men come by and try to recruit him with this whole thing. And he merges with the other alien. And Let's not talk about that. And the episode ends. This was better than I remembered. Truth be told. I mean, it's TOS. 
And I'll go ahead and say this in advance. TOS, uh, from memory, remember, I haven't watched this show in quite a while. Uh, TOS from, uh, not the whole thing. Usually I do, I do the skip list, right? I, I pick the episodes I like and I watch them. So this will be the first time watching the whole show in a really long time. In fact, I've never watched the whole of the remasters all the way through. So, um, what I am expecting from TOS is some episodes that are really good, and then some episodes that are really bad. And I'm not sure how true that's going to be as we go through this. I do hope you have enjoyed my thoughts here, and I do hope you will journey with me through this series as we talk about it and discuss it. Otherwise, I look forward to your comments, and I'll see you next time, guys.